We thank God for our uh, many ministers of music here at Faith, not the least of which is our handbell choir, the Bells of Faith, Campanas de Fe. Uh, thank you for the way in which you help us glorify God with your gift of uh, music like that. Uh, before I read um, our second lesson from Romans, um, I just want to share with you something. Uh, all of our pastors, Pastor Clark, Pastor Watts, and I provide the staff and our musicians um, the Bible readings and the sermon theme uh, months in advance as they plan and prepare for every week of, um, of worship, selecting songs that speak to the overarching theme. And so it was um, well before the events of this last week that um, Romans 8 uh, was submitted as one of the lessons today. And I find a great uh, comfort and, uh, and hope in this text, especially in light of what took place um, this last week in Thousand Oaks, California with the uh, shooting. Uh, some of you know that uh, our daughter Emily, her husband, our son-in-law Brian, both went to Cal Lutheran, and so uh, that strikes really close to home. Uh, even my wife Kirsten uh, studied at Cal Lutheran before transferring to uh, Luther College where we met in Iowa. And um, we have this promise from God you know, that when um, life is so overwhelming, when, you know, we, we want to pray, uh, but we just feel so helpless or, or weak, we don't know how to pray the way we should, um, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't always know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit of the living God, listen to this, intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf with sighs, you know, too deep for words, too profound for human vocabulary. So uh, we'll be praying for all those who are grieving um, the tragic loss of sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters in Thousand Oaks. And later in the service, we'll also be praying for those who are keeping watch over their loved ones in hospital who were, um, who were wounded in that terrible shooting. So we begin with the first verse of the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors 
not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words, And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul has some important uh, truths to, uh, to tell us today in his letter to the church to the church in Rome and to the church today. Powerful truths that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll repeat that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which for many begs the question, well, why would there be condemnation in the first place? I'm a nice person. I try to do good. What's wrong with me? And so we go again to Scripture where we are reminded that All of us, in one way or another, at one time or another, like sheep have gone astray. And many of us, like the psalmist, as Tom read Psalm 25, hope and pray that the sins of our youth are not counted against us. Why would there be condemnation? Because the wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. This is truth. And here's the greater truth that Paul proclaims for all ages. Jesus has taken the condemnation we had coming. Jesus has died the death you deserve and I deserve. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. Not a little condemnation, not a small amount of condemnation. None. It's a done deal. You have been set free from the power of death. And the price for your sin and my own has been paid not with silver, not with gold, but the innocent and precious blood of Jesus. 
Now, I am at that age, um, longer in the tooth than I used to be, where my children are reminding me that when I tell a story, I have told it many times before. And I have suggested, well, maybe I can just give each story a number, and then when we're around the dinner table, I can say, <laughs> number 14. Then they can all laugh, and we can move on. But I checked my records, and the last time I shared this story was in 2012. So give me a break. I've only told this, you know, once before in the last six years. And if you by chance remember this sermon illustration, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. But there was a man long ago sentenced to death, and he obtained a reprieve assuring the angry king that he would teach his majesty's horse how to fly within a year on the condition that if he didn't succeed, he would willingly be put to death one year from now. And he was asked, why would you agree to that? Just delay, delay the inevitable. Just get on with it. Be executed. And the man said, well, within a year, the king may die, or I may die, or the horse may die. But who knows? In a year, maybe I'll teach the horse to fly. So that's one way to deal with a death sentence, right? But we don't have to deal with our sentence of death, our condemnation that way. We don't have to teach a horse to fly, and we don't have to wait and see if the king may die. In fact, the king of kings and lord of lords, the king of heaven and earth, has already died and already taken our place and received the sentence intended for us. Jesus died on a cross with a crown of thorns that we could live with him, our king, forever. And no matter what guilt you may feel, no matter what burden might be yours for the sin of your past or the brokenness of your life, um, there is no condemnation. There was, but it's been addressed. It's been taken care of. The price has been paid. We will not submit to um, the slavery of fear. For we know in Christ that God loves us and has died for us and opened the way to the eternity of heaven for all of us, sinners one and all. Now, having this good news that the price has been paid, the condemnation, um, it's been suffered by Jesus in our place, Paul knows that until we see the Savior face to face, we still wrestle in this life. And he describes this, um, this, this battle, this turmoil, this tension as the battle between flesh and spirit, right? You heard that. And when the Bible speaks of flesh and spirit, um, I need to remind you that it's not what many good people, even some Christian people think. Many people wrongly think that flesh has everything to do with whatever takes place, you know, on, on this side of heaven. So flesh is, you know, our life, our relationships, um, our decisions, our, our work, our families. You know, all this earthy stuff. And the spirit has to do with everything, you know, beyond the clouds, uh, out of this world, kind of um, an out-of-body realm. You know, where there aren't physical things, but only spiritual things floating around. In this worldview, to be spiritual is to somehow divorce yourself from this world, you know, ignore the problems, look away from the pain, and concentrate on the so-called heavenly things, you know. 
uh, meditate and elevate have nothing to do with things down here like, um, like the ministry of Steelbridge and dealing with hunger in our city, uh, dealing with problems and relationships. And, you know, to be spiritual means you're not overcome by concern with things like homework and chores and jobs and the crime rate and on and on and on. And this is not what God is telling us in his word about flesh and spirit. We pray, don't we? Don't we pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God's kingdom to come to this earth. This earth desperately needs the kingdom of our Lord. We want the will of God and the power of the Spirit to unfold and be accomplished in our lives, in our relationships, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our congregation. And when we pray that Lord's Prayer, we don't pray it half-heartedly. It's a battle prayer. Lord, your kingdom come. Come, Lord. Come among us as we fight this good fight of faith, as we're engaged in this battle of flesh and spirit. The battle is actually waged right here on earth. To be spiritual is to align yourself with Christ and his kingdom and to devote yourself to which Christ devoted himself not to sit around ignoring the world or the people in it. I mean, think on Jesus, how he reached out to those who were broken, marginalized, diseased, blind, hurting, suffering. So here's a shorthand way to think about flesh and spirit when you encounter it in the New Testament. If you're thinking in terms of the flesh, well, that's the, what's in it for me? Just me, only me. I'm number one. I'm the center of the universe. But if you live in the Spirit, it's a different question. As God's adopted daughter, as God's adopted son, what does my Father in heaven call me to do this day? How might I glorify God in my speech, my conduct, my work, my relationships? How might I glorify the one true God who is Lord of all? So having declared the condemnation removed, having acknowledged that there is this struggle between um, life as we know it now and the life that we'll enjoy when we see Jesus face to face. Uh, Paul says we, uh, we live with this abundant, certain hope. We are people of hope. In hope we've been saved. We are people of hope. And we wait for the kingdom in its glory with patience. One Saturday afternoon, a man was taking a stroll and he walked by the local ballpark where Little League games were held. This was an old school ballpark. It didn't have, you know, the big sign with electronics. So he walked up to one of the dugouts and he got the attention of a boy and said, Hey, son, uh, what's the score of this game? And the boy looked up and said, well, we're behind uh, 18 to nothing. And the man said, whoa, that's depressing. And the little boy fired back and said, it is not. It's only the top of the first inning. We haven't even got up to bat yet. <laughs> so, so that's one kind of hope. And God bless the boy or girl who has that kind of hope no matter what the odds may be, right? But we use that word hope in so many different ways in our language, in our vernacular, don't we? 
I mean, certainly none of you, certainly not in this workplace, certainly not in your offices, but, you know, an employee embezzles money illegally at work and hopes not to get caught. Um, The bow hunter hopes the 12-point buck will present himself at 10 yards broadside. The family prepares the picnic after another busy week with everyone going in a thousand different directions. They hope just two hours in the park with the picnic, and we hope it doesn't rain. And not far away, the farmer hopes for rain because his crops desperately need the moisture. A student, no student here, but a student hopes to pass the science test on Friday, even though he knows He didn't read the assigned material or do the homework or prepare. There's lots of different ways we talk about hope. And sometimes our hope can be grounded in anything but reality. Uh, No doubt you've heard this expression. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. Many people have hope like this. Oh, they sure hope, yeah, sure you betcha, that things will be different, though they're doing the same wrong things over and over and over again. Uh, This hope is not grounded in reality. Some would call it insanity. Uh, The hope Paul describes for us this morning is nothing like this. Uh, We don't have a hope because we can make ourselves holy. Uh, We don't have a hope because if we just try really hard this time, we can make ourselves good enough to be God's own sons and daughters or make ourselves righteous. You can try again and again on your own, but it won't work. God says so. And if you could save yourself, then Jesus didn't need to pick up his cross and die the death that we had coming. But God doesn't want us to do the same tired old things over and over again. He doesn't want us to try and do that which we cannot do for ourselves. He knows our weakness. And as Martin Luther said so well in his great hymn, a champion's come to fight for us. A champion, a fighter, the Lion of Judah, and his name is Jesus. And God did an altogether new singular thing in Jesus, and it wasn't wishful thinking. He didn't send Jesus to give us an optimistic look on things. He didn't send Jesus to give us a little advice. He didn't send Jesus to provide us with 10, 10, count them, practical tips for successful living. He sent Jesus to die, a death we had coming. And through that death and resurrection to fill us with the power of that same empty tomb. So our hope is Christ. Our hope is in Christ. It is certain. It's not speculative. Years ago, I received a phone call from a local mortuary. There was a man there whose wife had died. And even though he never went to church, he was looking for a Lutheran pastor to do the funeral because he remembered his wife was raised, raised Lutheran back in the Midwest. And so he wanted to give her a nod and have a Lutheran pastor do the funeral. I, uh, I met the man, and he said, uh, I don't want you talking about God. I just want a Lutheran pastor for my wife. I really don't want a funeral that's, you know, too religious. And I told him, um, then we got a problem. Because I can't do a funeral service without talking about God. For without God, I got nothing to say. And then he went on. 
Well, I sure hope all this uh, talk about life after death is real. Because, you know, I'd like to see my wife again. And I told him that um, eternal life is real. Because Christ came to conquer sin and death and open the way to eternity to all those who simply put their trust in him. And he said, well, young fellow, you're awfully sure of yourself. And I said, no, I'm not. I am not sure of myself. On some days, I am most unsure of myself. But I am sure of my Savior. And my hope is not a hunch. My hope is in the living God, crucified and risen Jesus Christ. So friends, our hope is not based on what might happen if we get lucky. It's based on what has already taken place. Our hope is not the power of positive thinking, wishful thinking. Our hope is born out of a cosmic struggle between Jesus and the power of death. And he came out on top. He's the victor. So let the world around us hope in all the different ways that it hopes. In speculation, in confusion. But our hope is, in the words of Scripture, sure and certain because of Christ's victory. Okay, I want to close with uh, one last story. And if I repeat it, you can name it um, Pastor Bruce's sermon illustration number 14. If I, if I tell this story again before I retire, somebody say, 14! Okay. Um, years ago, when I was still serving on the board of trustees for uh, Lutheran Congregations and Mission for Christ, uh, I got a phone call from someone who wanted to make sure that someone from the board was going to reach out to um, a fellow pastor. Because, you know, in our church body, it's not hierarchical. You know, it's not this ecclesial ladder. We don't have some bishop or president or superintendent. It's just us, the people of God. You know, just the people of God. And the board of trustees doesn't lord it over the congregations. We serve the congregations. The way I think denominations are supposed to be, by the way. But anyway, I got a phone call from someone desperately trying to reach a member of the board saying, uh, we just got word that last night uh, one of our Lutheran pastors, Jim Lindgren, and his wife Judy um, got the news that their daughter, Stephanie, was tragically killed in a car accident. And not only that, but she was in her last trimester of pregnancy with their grandson, Joshua, who also died. So, Pastor, would you please reach out? So, you know, um, I looked up the phone number for the congregation there in um, Iron Mountain, Michigan. And I dialed the office just hoping somebody would be there to give me the home number for the Lindgrens. And um, mind you, it's the day after his daughter and unborn grandson have been killed. And I call the church, and it's Pastor Jim. And, um, you know, as soon as I dialed the numbers, I'm thinking, what am I going to say? I mean, what do you say? Spirit, intercede with sighs too deep for words. That was my prayer. And as is so often the case, when you want to do the right thing and you, you try and reach out to someone who's suffering, you want to bless. Instead, I received blessing. I mean, I don't think I'd be in my office the next day if one of my daughters was killed. That's the truth. 
And there he was in the office. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm preparing my sermon for Sunday, of course. And then he went on to tell me, you know, if it wasn't for our hope in the gospel, I don't know how my wife Judy and I would uh, move forward. If it wasn't for our hope in the gospel, I don't know what my um, son-in-law Paul would be doing. But we have this hope in Christ, and that's what we're clinging to. And so I'm going to preach this coming Sunday like I've never preached before, because this world needs this gospel so desperately. That family was able to move forward in Iron Mountain, Michigan, not because of their upbeat attitude, not because God gave them a really big sour lemon and they made lemonade, because they know Christ. And their hope is in Him for their daughter, for their grandson that they won't meet until they see Him in heaven. And they know uh, this hope, not because of who they are, but because of who Christ is. And that, my friends, is the same hope I pray all of us share. In the midst of all the joys and all the sorrows, all the hardships, all those moments when we don't know how to pray, that we lean into the hope that is ours in Christ's victory over sin and death. Pastor Lindgren had it right. This gospel, it's got to be preached. And so we do, you and I, with our words, and more often with our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.